Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. Okay, so we have a very interesting episode today. Everyone's going to want to tune in. We have the husbands of three women in our community, and we're going to be calling them Gus, David, and Adam. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Before we get to this amazing interview, if you are wondering what the reality is in your relationship and you're struggling to know, are you being gaslit? Is this abuse? Please join Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. Go to btr.org, click on services. You can see the tab for our online daily support group. We have multiple sessions a day in multiple time zones, so check that out. Also know that Betrayal Trauma Recovery partners with Center for Peace. So many women ask us, is there a place where we can send our husbands that adheres to this abuse model? And Center for Peace is that place. So if you're looking for a recovery program for your husband that adheres to the abuse model, check out Center for Peace. The website is cenfp.org. So many people think that BTR is like anti-man or maybe pro-divorce, and we are neither of those things. We are very pro-safety. Safety is the top priority. So we're going to start with a very difficult question, and we're just going to go down the line, starting with Gus, and then we'll go to David, and then we'll go to Adam. And Their wives are in our BTR community. Let's talk about how you came to realize that your addictive behaviors were actually abusive to your wife. In one sense, I think it's like something that continually is expounded upon. I'm like, oh, okay, this is how I've hurt her. And then as I go on, I'm like, oh, no, wait, that was just the beginning. I guess in the beginning, it was when she literally got physically ill when she found out a bunch of stuff. She had to go to the doctor and she had pneumonia and it was from just finding out everything, just put her, you know, mind and body into shock. And that was probably one of the biggest things that was like, oh, this isn't just a emotional breakdown. This is real and it really affects way more than I think it does. David, what about you? For me, it really starts with safety. After my most recent D-Day, seeing the reaction on my wife's face and in her body and the sound of her voice kind of made me frantically looking for ways to get her in a safe place. And part of that safety seeking was I'm going to listen to the things that she has to say. I'm going to do my best to open my mind. And I've just made it sound like a far easier process than it actually was. There were a lot of false starts and stops throughout that. But as I've tried to become more safe for her and listen to the things that she says, read the things that she recommends, watch the videos that she wants to show me, that kind of helped to chip away at this wall that I built up around the word abuse. Because abuse is a is a tough word. I deal pretty regularly with women who have been very violently physically abused. And to kind of mentally put myself in the same shoes as the guy who's going to kick in his wife's teeth, that's a really tough pill to swallow. There's a lot of pride that gets in the way of that. And in order to knock that pride down, really, for me, took a lot of effort to say, I'm going to listen to my wife when she says something that I disagree with before I immediately start to argue with her. 
I'm going to take a deep breath and ask the question, is this true? Does this apply to me? Getting involved in recovery groups with other men has really helped me to see what abusive behavior looks like, even my own abusive behavior, because I'll see somebody else doing it and I'll think, man, what a jerk that guy is. And then I'll have the moment of clarity where I say, oh, that's what it looks like when I do exactly what I'm criticizing him for. So being involved in a community like that really helps to open my eyes to the effect that my behavior has had when I see the effect that some other guy's behavior has on his wife. Yeah, I think that's why groups are recommended. You can sort of see what other people are doing and think, oh, the only problem is if you think, well, at least I'm not like that guy. Okay, Adam, your turn. How about I ask you another one? Why do you think it's so hard for men to understand that their behaviors like lying or manipulation or gaslighting or deceit, things like that are abusive to their wife. Why was it so hard for you to recognize? Because I didn't want to realize that. For me, realizing that meant that maybe some of the things that I was thinking that I was, you know, all this negative self-talk, that it was actually true or that maybe I really was bad. I had a lot of internal struggles for me. I'd say my biggest hang-up in my recovery, my work towards recovery, or even just acknowledging that I was an addict, was that I was a liar. I could not be honest. I think being honest with myself was probably what I was running from, not knowing how it was affecting my life or even really even caring at the time. I tend to think that honesty is a skill. It's a character trait, but it's also like this skill, right? Because naturally when we feel embarrassed or when something happens, like I see my kids do it and they just naturally want to lie and they'll say a little lie and I'll be like, okay, like you have another choice here. This is the skill that you could learn the skill of honesty. And that's one of the skills that men are learning when they're in recovery and women too. There are women addicts out there, but we're all trying to improve on the skill of honesty. But it's definitely something that when you don't want to tell the truth is very difficult, especially to yourself. I think that's really good. Absolutely. And I feel like lying is a skill. You get better at it. Something that you hone, you realize what you can get away with and how you can avoid the consequences. And so for me, there was a lot of my addiction became a skill that I honed over time. So breaking that skill and creating a new skill is definitely, it's twofold. I do want to say, going back to the original question, reading the book, Why Does He Do That? And being in a group has really helped me see the effects of my actions, my addictive, abusive actions. Yeah, can I add something? I think one of the other things that has really, really benefited me understanding that is being in groups, not only with the men, but especially more with the women, the spouses of those husbands. Because for whatever reason, we go through this thing where we think that our wives just don't understand and they somehow transform into the bad guy. But when I hear about another woman sharing her vulnerability and her pain, and I'm like, oh, she's really hurt by that. I reflect and I'm like, oh, I've done the same thing to my wife. Oh, that must be how she's feeling. That's been probably one of the most beneficial things. Same with me. I've been able to be more empathetic 
towards my wife by seeing how other people treat their wives and their reactions and, and then going, wow, I'm doing the same thing. It's mind boggling why that would happen, but it does. I can be more empathetic towards another person seeing it from the outside than when I'm the abuser causing the abuse, being able to see that I'm actually doing the same thing. I would like to just add, I agree with what Adam said about recommending Why Does He Do That? I very strongly recommend that book to anybody listening to the podcast and also to a lot of people who I just encounter. So I read the book and afterwards, as I was talking about it with my wife, and she says, what did you think about the book? I was almost embarrassed to say, you know, I don't see a lot of myself in that book because I was afraid that I was about to get in an argument. And she responds and says, you know, I don't see a lot of you in that book either, which made me feel pretty good about myself. But even if I'm not the terrorist, as Bancroft describes it, or the Mr. Wright, or all of these different guys that he describes, I've definitely seen some of those things. And it, it helps me kind of refine my approach to my relationship with my wife. There's always a skill to be learned in becoming less and less abusive. Mm-hmm. So now that you guys have read Why Does He Do That, your next homework assignment is to read The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. Because I look at these two as like the Bibles of abuse. And I wonder if you didn't see yourself in Why Does He Do That, if you would in The Verbally Abusive Relationship. Because there are some really subtle ways that I didn't recognize before that are abuse. One of them is stopping a conversation in the middle of a conversation, but not for boundaries sake, but to control the conversation that I was like really surprised about. So that's your next homework assignment. And maybe after you guys read it, you can come back on the podcast and tell me what you thought about it. It's called The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. You mentioned the word control, which to me, I think just really goes to the heart of what abuse is all about. And that, I think, is something that helped me get over that hump of accepting the word abuse is, no, I'm not the person who's going to throw a punch or who's going to block a doorway or something. But every time I've lied, it's because I'm trying to control an outcome. Every time I have gaslighted, every time I've done any kind of manipulation, I'm trying to control an outcome in an unfair way. And I think control really gets to the heart and soul of all of it. That is... I'm going to control you in order to protect myself, even if that doesn't feel to me like abuse when I'm in the middle of it. Once you get out of it and you look backwards, you can say, oh, okay, I get it now. One of the insights that I've had is definitions. We love definitions in order to communicate well with each other, but definitions are something that can really be weaponized. So for example, if I say, all right, here's my definition of what acting out looks like or what a relapse is, what that means is I've drawn a bright line. As long as I walk up to and get my toe within one inch of that line, but don't cross over it, then, hey, I'm in the clear. I haven't violated it. I haven't relapsed. I haven't acted out. And you can't feel mad at me because I haven't crossed that line. I'm trying to control your feelings by using a definition. So many of the tools in the recovery drawer can be double-edged swords this way because you are using something that's supposed to help you recover in order to control somebody else's response. Yeah. And I think that's one reason why this topic is bigger than just porn use, right? That's why the abuse umbrella seems to fit better is because there is also these societal norms for men around 
quote unquote, controlling a situation or being in control. That in general, in general, our society has not taught men to recognize this type of abusive behavior or women. And so it's very difficult for people to wrap their head around that these forms of subtle, like, quote unquote, controlling the situation are actually really harming someone else. Women, classically speaking, have had a hard time with their voice speaking up or being understood or saying things, especially when they're dismissed and gaslit. And so it's bigger than just pornography. It's also this huge societal sort of imbalance between the way that men and women are perceived and how they're interacting in a lot of ways. So once you were able to embrace the word abuse, knowing that abuse is a behavior and that behaviors can change and that people can change their behavior, how did coming to the understanding and then accept that your addictive behaviors were abusive, how has that helped you improve your life? So let's start with Gus. I guess it comes down more to the rude awakening of recognizing I really have been a terrible person. You look back and you're like, wow, I am these things. I have done all of these things. You start recognizing this is a bigger deal than I had at first thought. You recognize the physical aspects of it, physical in every way, the physical side effects of what any kind of abuse does. I can be verbally abusive and it can affect someone physically. I have been physically abusive to my kids. I was mean. I took it out on everybody. Recognizing that I have ruined lives. I've taken them away from what they were supposed to be. It's a heavy thing to bear. And I don't know if there's any way to bear it without accepting it and being like, I need God in this because I can't do it. Well, and you certainly would not be able to bear it if you weren't willing to change. So the change part, I don't know, but I'm guessing makes it a little bit easier to bear. Because otherwise, if you're not willing to change, then denial is the only option. I mean, otherwise, you're just a really terrible person and you're just going to continue to be a terrible person. Now, I know the weight of it is very severe and very difficult. But as you have admitted that and moved forward, has that made things better for you? Oh, yeah. I don't know if I would consider it a weight anymore. It's very liberating in a way to accept this is what I am, but this doesn't necessarily mean this is what I will always be. It cuts off the self-deception. I think for myself anyway, I didn't recognize how much energy focus, time, and attention I put into the self-deception that it being gone is a relief and just the acceptance is relief. If I can learn to accept myself without all the crap, all the negativity, if I can learn to love and accept myself, that's the only way I can move forward. We will talk about living amends and how that helps you process and move from the point of I am a really bad person to I was in the past tense. So Adam, what about you? How has coming to understand and accept that your addictive behaviors were in fact abusive helped you work toward recovery? When I first realized that moment, there was an intervention between some ecclesiastical leader and friends. And the moment I realized that I had an addiction, 
I actually felt hope and it was the hope of I'm not broken and I can heal and I can do something about this. It was empowering in a way and that helped me get on a path towards recovery. I think that realizing that I had abusive tendencies, abusive behaviors and that my addiction itself was an abuse. It woke me up to how complex and serious this addiction really was, that it just wasn't one-dimensional or even two-dimensional. It was totally three-dimensional, and I had to work on every aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned before that one of the reasons you lied was to avoid the consequences. Do you think in admitting that, okay, this is abuse, this has been harmful, that you sort of leaned into the consequences and how has that worked out for you? So I couldn't fix something I didn't know that was a part of me. So in that sense, knowing that I had another dimension to my addiction has helped my recovery that much more in that, you know, I'm not just working, um, stopping one or two behaviors. I'm actually working on revamping control out delete, <laughs> you know, a hard restart on everything that I thought I was and creating the new me. And part of that was recognizing all these other behaviors, actions, and the consequences and the fallout of everything. This might not sound the most pleasant, but in the beginning, when someone is in denial and whatever change has to happen to make them like progress in the right direction, I think, at least for myself, I wasn't where my feelings towards others forced me to want to do better. Like, I, I don't know if it was because I was still in such a selfish state, but I think it came down more to an understanding of myself and what was going to happen to me if I didn't change. And then as I started getting sober, then the ability to have more empathy for my wife and children began to grow and increase. Yeah, Lundy Bancroft says that. He says that an abusive man is only concerned about the consequences to him, not so much about what's going on around him. And until you have a period of non-abusive behavior, can you even start to think about, oh, how it was affecting other people? Okay, David, I'm interested to hear your take on this, how admitting these behaviors were abusive helped you work toward a more healthy life. I want to start by saying I've counseled with a lot of men who've told me, you know, I don't know if my marriage is going to survive. And I will always tell them I'm not the least bit interested in your marriage surviving because right now you don't have a marriage that's worth saving. What I'm more interested in doing is saving you. And if you can be saved, and that's a big if, then you might be the kind of person who's worth staying married to. So let's focus on Let's get you sober. Let's get you to stop being abusive. Let's get you to make some of the progress that your wife really is desperately hoping that you're going to make towards being a safe person for her to be around. So I think questions about safety really have to start with that attitude. We can't approach the problem of saying, how do we save this marriage? And then with a stronger marriage, how do we fix the people in it? Because if one of those people is just really vicious and harmful then that's not a marriage that's worth saving. So how does a man become a safe person so that he's worth being married to? I'd say the first step is you have to listen to what your wife says. 
you have to really be willing to say, tell me what you need from me, and whatever you ask me to do, I will do. That's a lot easier said than done, but as with anything in life, it gets easier with practice. But there's an interesting corollary to that that I've learned. The man cannot say, you tell me what to do and I'll do it, and in effect, put the entire burden upon her. Because this is a woman who's just had her entire life be completely demolished. As she's surveying the wreckage, a man walks up to her, a man who's supposed to be her companion and on the same side as her, and says, listen, if you don't come up with a solution, then that's on you. So step one is listening to her, but step two is you really do have to be proactive in your own recovery. You can't simply say, if you don't demand it of me, then it's not my responsibility, and then wash your hand of it. I really want to echo what Adam had to say about weaponizing. Why does he do that? But the reality is that any of these tools can be weaponized. So step three is don't weaponize any of these tools. And it's hard to do. You have to be conscious. You have to be aware of what you're doing so that you don't weaponize these tools. I want to give an example of this. The phrase, I get my validation from God, can be a very healthy attitude or it can be a weapon. I get my validation from God was something that really helped me as I was struggling through a hard time when I just wasn't feeling a lot of validation from my wife because, you know, reality check, I didn't deserve any validation from her. But to the extent that I did deserve any validation at all, like, hey, I made some progress. I made this little baby step. I want you to throw me a party. I want you to congratulate me. I want you to give me some kind of a grace period where now the next time I screw up, I can say, yeah, but what about that baby step that I took three weeks ago? When a man in recovery does make a positive step and the woman doesn't react the way that he expects or hopes her to react, the healthy response is to say, that's okay. God knows my heart. God knows that I have made this difficult and important step. If she's not willing to acknowledge that right now, that's okay. I will get my validation from God for now. But here's how you weaponize the phrase. I get my validation from God as a weapon when you say it as, I don't care what you think. Your opinion is not important to me because God's opinion is important, so I'm going to ignore you. And that's just one of the many ways that you can take these very good, strong, healthy tools of recovery and turn it a hammer as a tool. Well, it's a weapon, too, if you want it to be and any of these things can be weaponized, don't weaponize the tools. Speaking to any men who listen to this, your wife can be one of the most important tools in your toolbox of recovery, but don't weaponize that. First of all, you have to recognize she's not a useful tool if she doesn't get education into what abuse looks like and how to get out of it. The more educated she is, the more that she's going to hold boundaries, and it's going to hurt. You have to recognize, hey, she has every right in the world to educate herself and then to hold these boundaries. And building up resentments over those boundaries is weaponizing it. Codependency ideas are weaponizing it. Hey, you're supposed to be helping me out of this, but you've got your own messed up things going on, so you're not doing your half of things. That's weaponizing it. Having a wife who is strong, educated, committed to holding her boundaries, there will never be a better tool. But just like anything else, it can be weaponized. Um, You know, you're treating me unfairly. To the women out there, 
Don't make saving your marriage your priority. Make your education and your growth and your safety your priority so that hopefully in the future you have a marriage that's actually worth saving. To any men who listen to this, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I want every man in the entire world to hear what I have to say. Recovery is possible. Honesty is possible. Living without the shame and the guilt and the fear, it's actually possible no matter how many times you've failed. I've failed over and over and over again, and I've thought the worst possible things about myself. But you don't have to live that way. At this point in the interview, David made a very emotional plea to men to change, to seek truth and seek safety for their wives. And also the microphone went out right at that moment and we lost him. And so we're actually going to pick up this conversation again in next week's episode. So stay tuned. We're going to be talking about things like living amends and how abusive men can make restitution for their abuse. So stay tuned for next week. As always, if this podcast is helpful to you, please rate it on iTunes. Every single one of your ratings helps isolated women find us. And if you need one-on-one support, if you need to talk to somebody, go to btr.org. We have two different options for you. Number one, we have individual sessions that you can schedule at any time and they're online. You can do it on your phone, in your car, you can do it on a tablet on your computer, you can find a time that works for you or a betrayal trauma recovery group where you never have to schedule an appointment. There are multiple sessions a day in multiple time zones, so you can just hop on whenever you need to. Our coaches get it immediately. They can help you set boundaries and you will not have to explain like what's going on or try to convince the therapist that this is abuse. Our coaches get it immediately. So go to our website, btr.org to learn more. And until next week, stay safe out there.